Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the sports podcast that you all want and need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs. We are back from summer vacation and ready to roll. Joining me is Jessica. Hi. Amira. Hi. And a dancing Shireen. Hello. We're back. Hello. Bye. It's back. All right. Woo. Wow, that was Amira really indulging Shireen for you all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much indulging that was. Amira looked like she enjoyed that a lot. I I loved it. I loved every second of that. Couple of quick announcements at the top of the show. Starting next week. We're going to be flipping our episode days. So interviews will be out on Tuesdays. The conversational main episodes will be out on Thursdays. Should really not impact your life that much. (laughs) (laughs) Really, uh, we'll still be in your feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, And also just want to say that we want to be at South by Southwest. So there is a... Burn It All Down, Making a Feminist Sports Podcast. If you're interested in seeing us at South by Southwest, there's a link in our show notes, I think is what they're called, and on social media and everything, where you can vote for us. I know you might be excited to hear what we did on our summer vacations. Well, that will be on Patreon. So we'll be excited to share that with you all on Patreon. This week, we're going to be talking about how we're saying goodbye to legends As you might know, we've got some big retirements coming up. Of course, we've got a burn pile, which has been simmering for about six weeks, so we are ready to go. And um, torchbearers and what's good. So stick with us. First of all, though, one of the retirements is Serena. We could all talk about Serena for about 10 episodes straight, but we just want to go through our favorite Serena moment. Pick one. Can we? Can we do this? <laughs> this is the challenge. <laughs> Jess? <laughs> yeah, I totally can. This is my this is my favorite. It's the Australian Open 2007. Serena, she was like going through this rough patch in the years leading up to it. Her sister, Yatunde Price, had been murdered. Serena had injuries. She went into this Australian Open unseated. And as the commentators would not shut up about, a little bit heavier. And as they kept saying, not as fit. She then ran through... Six seated players, including number one, Maria Sharapova, in 63 minutes in the final to win the whole damn thing. It's just one of the most amazing sporting feats that I have ever seen in my whole life. And so it is often one of the first things that I think about her. Mine is not of necessarily the athletic type, but one of my Serena moments, favorite ones, is when she was in... Lemonade. She was in Beyonce's Sorry from 2016 in that video, and she's on her throne. She's twerking in stilettos and a cat suit, and you are like, just all hail her. We know this, but to see it in this visual, creative, epic form was incredibly moving. The thought behind it, her being herself, like I loved every second when you think about the juxtaposition of how tennis is supposed to be white and you can't do this and remember all the shit that broke out when she crip danced like it was it was so beautiful and authentic to see her there i'm gonna cry sorry uh yeah mine look i'm just gonna be selfish i was at the 2013 u.s open final when she beat vika it was a three-setter it was electric and i loved it i love there's the dominant serena right like the one that just like 
six love, six love in semifinals, right? And just has everyone being like, you know, bowing down. I love when we see her struggle. I just like love seeing her figure out days when she's not her best. When you're like, oh, she's not actually a superwoman. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that like in like a complimentary way. Like she's, this isn't automatic for her and she has to figure it out. So I was there 2013. And so that's the best one. <laughs> I am also a fan of any Serena Beyonce matchup, whether Bees in the box or Serena's in a video. But Jess took my, because I also am a fan of 07 in the Australian Open, but I wanted to go back to Australia. So I chose the 2017 um, Australian Open, which saw Serena get number 23 versus her sister versus Venus. The fa- And Jess was saying this just the other day, like the fact that we got in 2017 uh, Williams, all Williams final speaks to the longevity of both of their careers. Uh, And then, of course, after she won that and made it to 23, that news that came out following it that she had done it while pregnant was just like an extra cherry on top. It was just like beyond mind-blowing. And I think that moment of time, that kind of next chapter, it feels very... I know that now we look back and we know that was the last major, but also it felt like a very much like a new... Serena chapter that we were all like getting to witness. Um, and that was, it's still just miraculous. It's been a huge month of goodbyes in women's sports. Allison Felix officially retired after the world championships last month. Sylvia Fowles, best center in WNBA history, played in her final game on Sunday when the Minnesota Lynx were eliminated from the playoffs. We've got Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm, who will be, you know, done whenever the Storm and their playoff run. And then, of course, last week, Serena Williams, we knew it was coming, but she announced that she will be hanging up her racket after the U.S. Open. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a joy playing in front of you guys all these years. So thank you. It's just been so memorable, you know? Like I said in my article, I'm terrible at goodbyes, but uh, goodbye. Thank you, Serena. Today, we want to give some love to all these four legends and a bonus legend you'll hear Amiris talk about later. Little moments individually, and then we want to talk about their impacts on their respective sports, the world as a whole, and we're really going to try not to cry. (laughs) So, Jess, I have to get you to get us started on Serena. Ugh. On Tuesday, August 9th, Vogue published a piece in which Serena said she is very near to the end of her tennis career. It's a really beautiful piece, and I suggest everyone read it if you haven't. In it, she talks about wanting to expand her family with Alexis, that Olympia really wants a big sister, and Serena wants her to have that. She talks about loving her work with Serena Ventures, which is a venture capitalist company that focuses on investing in women and people of color in tech. And of course, she reflects on her career and this moment of change for her. She mentions learning from watching her big sister, Venus, how she came back to tennis after her pregnancy. Let me let me read that line. Quote, I went from a C-section to a second pulmonary embolism to a Grand Slam final. I played while breastfeeding. I played through postpartum depression. It's incredible. She discusses trying to blaze a path that would make it easier for those coming behind her, which I think we can all agree she did very well um u.s open starts on august 29th she didn't technically say that would be it 
but I'm with Lindsay. This is like, this is it. Uh, Lindsay, what stood out to you about this article announcing that she's finished with the sport, playing the sport? It was how hard it was clearly for her to say this, you know? I mean, we all know, like, she's been hanging on for for a while, and, you know, she had that bad injury at Wimbledon last year, and I think there were a lot of times where we wondered, like, well, we see her again, right? Like, it would be very... At a certain point, time does catch up with you, even though, you know, it seems like you've defied it for so long. But to me, it was just really emotional to see her wrestling with it. She didn't want to say the word retirement. She said she didn't like that word. You know, I feel like she feel, felt bitter that she had to even say anything at all. You know, the fact that, you know, to give her daughter a sibling, you know, she wrestled with the fact that if she was a man, this wouldn't be the case, even though, of course, not many men play into their 40s in competitive tennis either. But, you know, but it's different. She doesn't want to let go. And I, I wish she was more at peace. But I also understand that, like, this might be just like a part of her peace. Right. Like, but it was it was tough. I was more emotional because I think I'm used to retirement announcements where they've already made peace with it before the announcement. And she very much was making trying to make some peace with it during the announcement. And that's hard because I don't want to see Serena sad. I think she literally says there's no happiness in this announcement for her, which is really powerful. I do appreciate that she used this language of evolution. She's so smart. She, she wrote, I'm here to tell you that I'm evolving away from tennis toward other things that are important to me. And I like that so much because there's a forward motion to it. Mm -hmm. There's a continuing, but also a new start. Like where I think we're all interested to see what post tennis Serena will, will be like. And we know that that she's thinking deeply about that as well. And, and using that language was, was so she's good at this. Just really quickly. Another word that she does admit that like tennis has always felt like a sacrifice. She said though, it's one I enjoyed making. And I think no matter what your love is, when you choose to give your all to one thing, you're choosing not to give your all to another thing. You know what I mean? Like you're constantly making these choices. We talk about transitions. We talk about aging and evolution in a myriad of way on in this show, in our own lives. But I think that reality of athletics, of like the bodily exertion that it requires, what it requires to stay fit, you know, as a mother, when you're older, I mean, I'm 34 and my lower back, like everybody was using that meme of Brittany this weekend, my lower back is killing me. And like, I saw it everywhere. And thinking about what it means to like age, um, as an athlete and to have that coupled with things like family planning and evolving interests. But I, I, like Lindsay, was so impacted by the very public wrestling with it. And, and even when she says, like, I can't say it out loud, then I cry. Um, I've only said, talked about this really fully with my therapist, you know, and I think it just really... To me, she even mentioned Ash Barty, and I remember how shocked we were. Yes. But then listening to Barty talk about her decision-making was almost calming. And this is, like, in in many ways the inverse, where it was, like, shock but not quite shocking. But instead, what we're sitting in is that kind of really hard space of, like, watching, like Lindsay said, her still wrestle with it. But it makes me feel especially, like, just how hard transition 
moments are and coming to terms with closing a chapter of your life or a version of it. I also was very compelled by the the openness of evolution and how it can be omnidirectional and it's not prescribed in any one direction and it's not stuck in nostalgia either. Shereen? Yeah, I like everybody else, uh, the language here was, was incredible, but I was also moved by her candor and her her honesty about, you know, not wanting to use the word retirement, but also her love of the sport, but not just the sport itself, not the athleticism, the entertainment. I was really intrigued by that and smiled when I was reading that part because it's incredible that she knows what her power is. And the particular part was when she says, I love to win. I love the battle. I love to entertain. I'm not sure every player sees it that way, but I love the performance aspect of it to be able to entertain people week after week. And that's part of the reason why I find her so compelling is that ability to manage. Of course, it comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress and everything like that. But she, Serena knows who she is. Like, and that's, for me, it sounds so bizarre to say it out loud. Like, it's like, of course, Shireen, she knows who she is, but she really knows who she is. And that's something that I started to watch tennis a long time ago with my grandfather in the, in, in the 90s. My grandfather loved Venus. And in fact, because of his accent, he couldn't actually say Venus. He used to say Venus Williams because Pakistanis confuse the W's and the V's. It was very endearing. And I got to know her through her sister. And I, I don't follow tennis like everybody else on the panel, but I followed them. So anyways, I just, she knows who she is. I don't know if she knew in the beginning, but she knows now. And to see her write that in Vogue was just, uh, it was it was incredible. So I guess... Just kind of what are our feelings? I know we all love her so much and, you know, what kind of came up for you and also just kind of what we want to see these last few weeks as she honestly gave us the gift of like being able to say goodbye kind of, you know, like during these last, she'll have a couple, she has a tournament in Cincinnati this week and then of course the U.S. Open. So yes. I feel like I'm going to cry just thinking about answering this question. Uh, <laughs> so my feelings were that I cried. Um, I was sad. Which felt really weird because, as we've already said, like we expected her <laughs> to retire. Like we all knew this was coming. And I sat, I, I, I saw the post and I had to sit down. <laughs> That's wild. And I've been thinking a lot about like, why am I reacting this way? Y'all, this is ridiculous. Look at this. It's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. I know there's something like I, I fit right in between Venus and Serena. Like, Venus is just older than me. Serena is just younger than me. And I came to tennis as a fan really hardcore in high school. So just before they broke, right? So in the real sense of, like, I grew up with them um, into adulthood alongside them. And also, I just fucking love watching them play. Like, it's given me so much joy. Like, so much joy for decades and so I have like on some level I'm just sad about losing that uh even though tennis gives that to me lots of people in tennis give that to me but also for me it's just a real passage of time here right so uh, Serena's evolving <laughs> and it's just a reminder I think the way that sports can just really mirror your life the way that you can really track your life um with these milestones and 
I think what I want to see is I, I'm excited about the celebration of her. Um, I hope we get something like this for Venus. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about Venus and like what this will mean for her. Um, Me too. Yeah. But I'm going to New York City. Oh. I'm going to be there for the first two days of the U.S. Open because I want to feel it in real life. I want to see her play. I want to see her play. I've never seen her play, which seems wrong to me, like just fundamentally for me and my identity as a sports fan. But I, uh, I want to feel New York City give her that celebration. And I just, I want to be there bad enough that I, that I am going to go. <laughs> so that's what I am excited about. Yeah. I, um, when I heard the news, which was because Jess texted me, like I had to call her immediately because it's holding space for this, like all of the joy and the the memories and everything tied up in it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Venus too, because I think what I realized is I always felt like I would have like a buffer, like I was ready for kind of like a one slightly two punch of like, Venus would mark the end of her playing and then I would be like on the clock for Serena and like ease into it and it that is not <laughs> it's not what happened and um I'm excited to see what these next few weeks look like I'm excited to go to New York and watch her play and to to make more memories like Jess said, see that reception. I mean, we already know the U.S. Open already announced the enormous amount of tickets that were sold on the heels of this Vogue piece dropping. So I'm already anticipating that it's fiery and I hope that she soaks it all in. I'm really enjoying these kind of foresighted retirements that allows people to do a goodbye tour, if you will. Like, I much better than... Coach K is like stupid goodbye to her, which is just like a practice and ego. This feels much more like an invitation. Yeah, one of the things, and we'll talk briefly about like what we've seen the WNBA this year, but I think like we've seen Sue Bird and Sylvia Fowles like come to terms with their decision like publicly. Do you know what I mean? Like through these gifts and through these ceremonies and in a way that I think has been uncomfortable for both of them, but that it's ended up helping them, I think. And I hope that this I hope Serena gets something good from this. Do you know what I mean? Like I hope she feels it and allows herself to be okay feeling it. I find that for her, I saw her play. I find it wild, Jess, that you haven't seen her play in person. I didn't know that. I saw her play in 2019 at the National uh, Bank Open in Toronto. And for me, Serena represented something that I've always identified with is being in a very white space. I mean, maybe that's my life, but just always being in those spaces. And that's something that I could relate to. I want to say I could relate to her quads, but I can't because they're magnificent. And like, I sort of always aspired to them. But for many who are in the margins, you saw that power, whether you were sporty or not, there was a way her creativity, her business prowess, the way she's just magnificent, her vulnerability, as a mom, and when she talked about postpartum depression, that, because I was like, if Serena can do it, it was okay that I had it, and I had it bad. So uh, after my fourth child, so like to see her talk about that was, you know, because there's ways in which she has addressed 
taboos and societal shaming that happens to women, especially racialized women and black women in particular. So the fact that she did that was really moving to me. But the other thing that I think about and what I hope for her is that she gets the time to grieve the way she needs to in this process. And that media is, I don't want to say gentle because media has never been fucking gentle with Serena, but that they, she's allowed that space to feel what she needs to feel without the constant encroaching. Um, I don't know. I was Initially, I wrote it's the end of an era, but I don't think so because part of that era is a continued legacy. And she has inspired. Like, we've seen Bianca Andreescu, we've seen Leila Fernandez, Emma Raducanu, Coco Goff all cite her as the trailblazer. So it's it's not the end it's the beginning for other smaller chapters i want to get more into her the motherhood aspect but i want to bring in another athlete who uh has had a big impact on that conversation um first uh remind us about the greatness of allison felix you know i think for so long i focused on just winning medals and you know wanting to to focus on that, but really the journey, you know, that's where you grow, that's where you stretch yourself and you become who, you know, you, you become, you know, what your goals are all about. And so just to take it all in and learn from the failures and the defeats. Allison Felix is retiring from track and field. Just amazing to watch the illustrious career she has had. Seven Olympic gold medals, three silvers, one bronze, the most decorated female track and field athlete ever with 11 Olympic medals. Um, she's competed in five Olympics, 14 world championships, uh, gold medals, I should say, three silvers, three bronze, and she has medaled in eight world championships over, wait for this, 17 years. Like, that is the definition of a illustrious and dominant career. Um, and she, too, has picked this time in this season to evolve past the sport. Uh, she's also Jessica's birthday twin. Um, and <laughs> you know how much of fans we are of birthday twins on this show. Allison, it was actually a really treat. I went to Worlds. I missed her last race, but I saw her in LA for the ESPYs. And then a day after that, she actually flew back to Oregon to unretire to run the semis of the four by four. And somebody tweeted, damn, even Allison gets that text from coach to put you in a relay. And she jumps on a plane and she retweeted it and joked about it. Um, but she has talked about what's next for her. I actually want to shout out Jordan Liggins has a great piece in Romper uh, interview with Allison. Um, and I think that one of the great things about Allison, like Serena, is we've we've had the opportunity to watch not only just sheer excellence in the field of play, but watch how as their lives have evolved, their style has evolved, their training has evolved, but also their reach beyond the sport has as well. And for both of them, advocating for maternal health concerns, for workplace provisions, for childcare. At Worlds this year, there was free childcare provided. That is 100% due to Allison's advocacy. Um, but particularly for Black maternal health outcomes, we know Black women in this country are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth, even when you control for education, for class status, etc. And both of them had very, very harrowing pregnancies and deliveries. Cami, Allison's daughter, spent weeks in the NICU to see those life circumstances, both, yes, just their straight athletic comebacks, but to see how it's 
changed how they intend to use their platform. And what seems very clear, especially for Allison, is as she steps into this new chapter, those lessons are what she's bringing forward as she turns this page um, to really make sure she continues to advocate for working moms, for Black moms, for athlete moms, and brings the, in- the infrastructure along to help those coming behind her. And that that's what I'm thinking about as Allison is, is saying goodbye. Yeah, it's really incredible. I mean, in 2019, she was part of the group um, along with uh, Alicia Montano and Kara Goucher, who with the New York Times and the op-ed section kind of came forward and talked about um, Nike's treatment of pregnant women and of mothers and of the contract disputes. And Allison said that, you know, Nike had wanted to pay her 70% less after her pregnancy and wouldn't contractually guarantee anything in the months surrounding her childbirth. And she said, if I, one of Nike's most widely marketed athletes, couldn't see protections, who could? She ended up signing with Athleta and that, you know, since then we've seen Simone Biles and other women in sports sign with Athleta and really work on combining their advocacy, combining empowering women on a much more, I think, personal level than a big company like Nike can do. And um, it's really cool. I mean, in 2019, and Allison's advocacy made things significantly different. Nike announced a new maternity policy. There are new contract guarantees for athletes paying bonuses for 18 months surrounding pregnancy. And other apparel companies did the same thing, followed suit. We don't see concrete change that often, right? Like, this is, like, real, real, real concrete change. Shireen? Felix's work on advocating for athlete moms, in my opinion, was just as important as her success on the track. It's easy to call someone, oh, you label people an athlete activist. But, you know, I remember Bilkis Abdul-Qadir talking about this. She wasn't a willing activist. She unwillingly became one because of the struggles she had. And, you know, Felix was Time's Woman of the Year, um, and she was pushing for what mattered to her, and it was actually really critical that she did because she exposed a massive gap in the health system that was mistreating people who birthed, and particularly Black women. I really feel like her movement there is as poignant and as powerful as her accomplishments on the track. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting when you think about Serena and Allison together around pregnancy and maternity and and athletes, because they both at some point in in their goodbyes have mentioned their idea of legacy and wanting it to be bigger than than what they're doing as athletes. And Serena wrote over the years, I hope that people come to think of me as symbolizing something bigger than tennis. I admire Billie Jean because she transcended her sport. I'd like it to be Serena is this and she's that. And she was a great tennis player and she won those slams. And then Felix has said the thing that she is most proud of is all of this stuff around maternity and Nike. And and she said, that's what I'm most proud of. That's what's most meaningful. And at the end of the day, that's the one thing that matters the most. And I just... They're just so much bigger than sport, both of them, what they've done around this. So many things, but this in particular. Absolutely. And 
as are, I think, the next two people we're going to discuss in different ways, right? Like they didn't have impact on motherhood in particular, but they had impact in other ways. But of course, we want to talk about Super and Sylvia Fowles, WNBA legends who are hanging it up after this season. Sylvia Fowles, the great center drafted number two overall in 2008, right behind Candace Parker. She's 36, 15 seasons, played at the Sky until 2015, and then for the Lynx, with the Lynx, she had two WNBA Finals MVPs, a WNBA season MVP in 2017, eight-time All-Star, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, two-time champion, and four gold medals. Um, and Sue Bird with the Seattle Storm is still playing. She's in the playoffs. Bird is 41 years old, which, you know, again, just like remarkable. She was drafted in 2002, 21 years in the WNBA, her entire career in Seattle, 13-time All-Star, four-time champ, five gold medals. And, you know, Bird is literally, you know, the assist leader in WNBA history and Fowles is the rebound leader in (laughs) WNBA history. So, you know what I mean? To say that these are two of the greatest ever, like, we are not exaggerating, people. Like, these are icons. And Fowles announced before the season this would be her last. Sue was pretty much assumed, but she made it official about halfway through. It's been a very interesting to kind of see these two very different people very respected people, their goodbyes take place together, um, but separate. I don't know, Jess. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're so interesting, right? Because you've got like this incredible point guard and Sue Bird, and then you have one of the best centers that we will ever have in the WNBA um, in Sylvia Fowles. But then, especially over the last like five years, you know, Sylvia doesn't like attention. <laughs> I-, I think it's safe to say she's a very quiet person publicly. And then you've got Sue, who's everywhere (laughs) at this point in ways that we deeply appreciate. Obviously, they grew up in very different places. Like Sylvia is of the South. Um, Sue is of the Northeast and were huge in college. But again, Sue at UConn, Sylvia down South at LSU, like they are so different in so many ways. And then the most obvious one, the one that's been on the surface a lot in the discussion around this is the fact that Sue is white and Sylvia is black. And in all the ways that we have seen the discrepancy and coverage of W players, they have, it has played out. It feels a lot over the season as, as to who has gotten attention in their retirement. I have a question for y'all about their college experiences that just touched on. As mentioned, Sue Bird is storied UConn. And Fowles being of LSU, how did that help? Did that have a play in the way that they're their coverage went because like as arguably somebody who came into college ball, women's college ball, UConn was all you heard. Do you know what I mean? For a long time. How do you think that affected where they went in their coverage in their careers? I think it's a little chicken in the egg. I mean, part of why UConn got so much attention was it was down the street from Bristol. They had a lot of white girls on the team. Gina was a coach that the media liked to tangle with. Um, So part of what we're talking about and identifying and and Jess pointed to as disparities in in marketing and visibility, et cetera, were absolutely at play and still remain at play when we're talking about UConn as a program. But LSU, especially when Syl was there and Simone Augustus was a dominant program, Um, of course, Simone Augustus it was just announced they were building her statue on campus. There's been now um, increased 
lobbying to get sell a matching one uh, on campus, which would be really, really dope. Obviously, um, it's been really cool to have Alexis at LSU right now to see the way they've been welcoming both of those players have come back and really tried to hype up this next generation because unlike UConn, what happened with LSU is there was a kind of drop in the program and now it's, it's burgeoning again. And so I think that to your question, Shireen, um, that ecosystem of, of marketing women's ball plays out from college to what we're seeing with the kind of retirement celebrations. Although after it became a narrative, I felt like we also saw a kind of explosion for Sylvia. And it's been great for me personally to see, at least in the last week or so, coming up to her final game, even if it was belated, an outpouring of love. Absolutely. I think one of the cool things that Sylvia's done, I mean, she's, everyone's talked about her hugs, like any media person. And like, I've received a Sylvia Fowles hug. And I can guarantee you, it's just like one of the greatest things in the world. Like, it's not awkward. And she's so warm. I remember being told like specifically, because Big Sil was her nickname for a while. And I think it might have been Cheryl Reed that was like, no, she doesn't like that. Mama Sil or Sweet Sil. She's got this very maternal, very like nurturing presence that does go against the, you know, block queen inside, like six foot five presence in the post. And that's why she's so special. But there was a New York Times article where Sylvia addressed the difference in kind of the attention that she got and the super got that why she's not as household of a name. Um, it's called why do I have to work twice as hard just to get notice? Like she said, 80% of us are black women, of course, in the WNBA. And you have to figure out how to market those black women. And I don't think we do that quite well. It reminded me of a Katie Barnes piece that they wrote on John Quell Jones for ESPN earlier this year about John Quell being the MVP and not getting endorsements. And, you know, John Quell felt that when she was more film presenting before she was the MVP, she, it was easier to get endorsements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I talked about there is like who had access to the machine. Yeah. And so that even as um, the marketing machine around women's ball has evolved, um, that kind of box you have to fit in to be marketable and seen as a franchise, not just a franchise player, but like the visible franchise player and to get the the third party endorsements that are going to bring in lucrative deals or give you that platform um that continues to be a ground that black women and queer black women more masculine presenting women in the w are fighting for um and so i think of course with both sue and Syl retiring at the same time a lot of that gets thrown back into the spotlight but it i think we'd re- be remiss to not mention that both of them have been very vocal about that as as many people in the w have been and i feel like it's an invitation to say okay well here's another example of that how do we make sure that the next sylvia fowles who's coming up gets all of the things that Syl should have Absolutely. Um, just want to talk about them individually as people really quickly. You know, Syl, I think, really brought about the age of player empowerment in the WNBA, which she doesn't get nearly enough credit for. She forced herself out of Chicago, out of that contract. And she's never really talked about exactly why, but she just needed a change in her life and um, was willing to sit out, right, and not play at all. And so it forced Chicago to trade her to Minnesota. That's a huge thing. Um 
she's spent her last season knitting hats for everyone close to her, which is just like the sweetest thing I've ever heard. So she does then get this reputation for being quiet and soft-spoken. She doesn't share anything about her personal life at all, you know, and the sweetness. But then... You have been a champion in this building. Holly Rowe asked her, what's your legacy? I want my legacy to be dominance. And I think I finished that on this note today uh, throughout my career. She was, I want it to be dominant. And I loved that. Mm. And then um, she voted against this recent, most recent CBA, which, you know, we've seen a lot of holes in. And um, she was one of the few players to say, no, we even deserve more. And, you know, I think she absolutely supported the people who had fought for it. But I think that's a really big point. I think it's really big about who she is. And, of course, the big thing, we haven't mentioned this yet, but she's going to be a mortician now. So, like... She wants to spend the next chapter of her life making dead bodies beautiful and helping care for dead bodies and helping families grieve and say goodbye. It's incredible. Um, whereas Sue, you know, I think it's been interesting to see the conversation about Sue be about like how much media attention she gets, because that's even a fairly new thing. <laughs> like, of course, she did have a lot easier access to the machine, being white, being more femme presenting, being from UConn being with the same team in a bigger market, winning championships, all these things. But she still wasn't getting much coverage at all. It's really been these past five years since she's become the assist leader, since her relationship with Megan Rapinoe has really gotten into the spotlight and since she's become much more comfortable with herself. And I think we'll play a clip here from her goodbye speech in Seattle. Um, You guys supported me from from day one. 21-year-old kid had no idea what the city was about. I found out very quickly. You supported me. You watched me grow up. I remember a couple years in, some of my teammates wanted to go to the Wild Rose. I went with them. Where she talked about how early on in her career, a Seattle Storm season ticket holder saw her in a gay bar in Seattle and kind of came up to her and was like, do you want to be in here? Like, you know what people are going to think if you're in here. And that kind of like care she got from the community before she was really out. But I did want to acknowledge everyone who made today possible, not just this moment and and having a sold out crowd, but allowing me to be myself. It took me a minute to figure out who I was, but, but once I did, I was all right. And you guys allowed me to do that. Being able to see these athletes evolve and change their impact and grow their voices. It's such a gift. Amira? So speaking of athletes growing their voices and evolving, the other summer retirement that I've had on my radar is Sebastian Vettel, who is retiring from Formula One. Seb Vettel is a four-time world champion, ranks third on the list of most podium appearances ever. He's only behind Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher, just to give a sense of like how dominant he was. He won his championships straight in a row. And he's only 35. And when he retired, one of the things that made me think of what we're, like, we're talking about with everybody is just how early these athletic retirements come in the scheme of things Um, and what happens when you start dedicating your life to a sport as a teenager and you put in 15, 17, 20 years. But Seb Vettel is one year older than me and it's wild for me to think about like what this represents just as human beings. For those of you not 
into Formula One. It was very interesting because he Sebastian's not on social media. Like he's like, I'll never make an Instagram. And then he made an Instagram. And for like half an hour, everybody was like, oh my God, he's on Instagram. And then his first and currently only post was his retirement video. So the roller coasters of emotion that day were high. Um, some of the things I just wanted to highlight from it that really resonated with me and echoed what we heard Serena write about, what we've heard Allison talk about, is about evolution and evolving away from the sport. Um, he started by listing things about him, like his favorite color and you know his likes outside of the sport. But he talks about how he had to commit in a certain way to his passion. And he said it no longer goes side by side with other things he wants to be able to do. And he he talked about that in a really beautiful way that I really appreciate male athletes having this conversation as well about parenting and that impact on their retirement. My goals have shifted from winning races and fighting for championships to seeing my children grow, passing on my values, helping them up when they fall, listening to them when they need me, not having to say goodbye, and most importantly, being able to learn from them and let them inspire me. He ends it very beautifully saying he's looking forward to unknown tracks. The marks I left on track will stay until time and rain will wash them away. New ones will be put down. Tomorrow belongs to those shaping today. The next corner is in good hands as the new generation has already turned in. I believe there is still a race to win. Farewell and thanks for letting me share the track with you. I loved every bit of it. And I think it's really interesting because when we talk about the legacy of of Serena on tennis or Allison on track or Sue and Sill on the W, I think about the next generation in those sports are already stepping into these very large shoes that are exiting. And with F1, I don't know who Seb is passing the baton to as the huge advocate that he has been for climate change, for diversity in racing, for women in racing, for for bees, for all these things. Him and Lewis Hamilton have really been out front on that. And, you know, Lewis and Seb have, have talked about wanting to see this next generation kind of pop up and fill those shoes. But I think it's hard. You know, it took Seb a while in his career to get to that place. But I feel like that sport is losing a huge advocate. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens to advocacy in that sport with one of their biggest vocal people gone. Even some of the drivers have come out and said, well, can you just stay on as our representation? He's the union, the players rep. And thinking about like literally what it shifts to sports infrastructure when you lose um, powerful athlete advocates. Um, and for all of the people that we've talked about the shoes that they are leaving to fill are enormous and we see the impact and inspiration that they have created on their sports, beyond their sports, um, in our memories, uh, in our hearts. And transitions can be messy and they can be hard, but there's also a great deal of beauty of them. And so happy trails to all these legends who are turning the page to a new chapter. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. 
Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Flamethrowers, we got a special Patreon segment uh, this week, which will be about what we did on our summer vacation. I wanted to go to I wanted to go to Popeyes because that's where our first date was, but like I got overruled. I didn't know your first date was at Popeyes. Yeah, that's great. He gave me his ch- last chicken tender, and I was like, "This is somebody worth thinking about seriously," because <laughs> I had already had all of a that. lot of good things from my co-host. So if you want to listen to that, head on over to Patreon.com/slash Burn It All Down. This week for our interview, I'm going to be talking with Maggie Hendricks of Bally Sports, previewing the WNBA playoffs, which will start on Wednesday night. All right, friends, burn pile time. (laughs) Shireen, you want to get us started? Y'all, I've had a very happy summer, but this shit is extreme. So I don't know how many have been following the fact that Hockey Canada is imploding in many ways. And the first thing that I will burn is the fact that senior executive of that organization have not stepped down despite the fact they lost federal funding. They literally lost funding from the government of Canada, who allots a certain amount annually to them. And the reason for that is in 2018, a woman alleged that she was sexually assaulted by multiple members of the Canadian men's world junior hockey team. And as a result, she was given a settlement offer very hush-hush by the COO and COO of the organizations, both of whom are still in their positions. Now, the way that this was done, as opposed to an investigation, as opposed to doing things properly, the woman was, young woman was given money. She's reached out. She did cooperate with the police. You know, her lawyer has spoken and said that she has done what she was supposed to. She is scared. She is overwhelmed and this is a huge burden and she's being re-traumatized constantly. Now, in the in the meantime, this all happened, all came to a head before a parliamentary hearing in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, in front of different members of parliament, including Pascal Saint-Ange, who is the Minister of Sport for Canada. And Pascal Saint-Ange was livid. She then pulled the funding, like as I mentioned, for Canada hockey. This is all happening in July. I'm on my honeymoon, y'all, and I'm trying to avoid news. And I'm, I'm hearing this because you can't avoid it, right? Then what happens is Canada Hockey decides to host the World Juniors this month, right now, in Edmonton, Alberta. And I really did write a column about this last week. But I'm so incensed that, A, those execs are still there, of course, out of eight board members, two are women, five are white men. This is horrific. And since 1989, there have been a slew of settlements by Hockey Canada, and the money 
that Hockey Canada uses to settle the allegations out of court comes from the fees that hockey players all over Canada pay. House league players, rep players, recreational hockey players, little kids, when their family pay fees, that's where that money comes from. If you think about how disgusting and how rotten this is to the core, how about you fucking fix the violent sexual assaults and the like the way that the system of violence carries forth continuously instead of paying money and not recognizing what needs to be done. And very much these are the same people that have been in these positions for a very long time. I'm not against having an opportunity to support women's programs and development programs for youth. But what I'm saying is those that making that are making the decisions are fucking terrible. And no, I'm not trying to take away Canada's identity, which I've been accused of by saying no, I'm sorry, Canada should not fucking be hosting anything. Their house is a mess. There is an absolute crisis with hockey in this country and attacking women and thinking that that's okay. Let's just give them fees that young players, peewee players play. And if you're a hockey fan and you don't see how problematic that is, I implore you to sit back and think about it. This is a disgrace. It's unacceptable. It's unfair to hockey and the genuine players and coaches and staff that are out there. And in the same time, the fact that the government of Canada pulled that funding means that it is going to affect the women's program because that's what they get the majority of their money from. So I want to take all of this and I want to burn it to the ground. All right, I'll go. So because time is a flat circle, we are still burning Deshaun Watson. If you need a reminder, Watson has been accused of sexual assault and other inappropriate conduct during massage sessions in civil lawsuits filed by 25 women. Um, These encounters took place from March 2020 to March 2021 while he was a member of the Houston Texans. And Jenny Brentis over the New York Times found that he actually met at least 66 women for massages over a 17-month period when he was with the Texans. But despite all this, the Browns traded for Watson in March, sending three first-round draft picks to Houston and giving him a new $230 million fully guaranteed contract. Um, A couple weeks ago, an independent arbiter appointed by both the NFL and the NFLPA, Sue L. Robinson, announced that Watson was suspended for six games for violating the league's personal conduct policy. Okay, so let's break this down. Robinson, who is a retired federal judge, actually did find that Watson had violated the personal conduct policy by engaging in unwanted sexual contact endangering the safety and well-being of another person and undermining the league's integrity. In a 16-page report, she called his conduct predatory and egregious and also specifically called out his lack of contrition because he has publicly denied everything and offered no apologies. But she also classified his behavior as, quote, nonviolent, which is confusing to me because I really not heard of nonviolent sexual assault. And she said that she was limited in how long she could suspend him because of past punishments and precedents set by the NFL. Well, the NFL is trying to set a new precedent and have appealed the ruling of six games. Um, According to the New York Times, they are arguing for an indefinite suspension um, with the option of restatement after a year. Uh, We could find out any day now. But the really, really egregious thing here is that the Browns who you might think would like to keep Watson kind of 
you know, behind the scenes a little bit, decided he would start in their preseason game <laughs> over the weekend and put him out on his their social media accounts, the Browns official channels, where he finally kind of apologized. He said, the decisions I made in my life that put me in this position, I would definitely like to have back. <laughs> Hello, passive voice. Quote, but I want to continue to move forward and grow and learn and show that I'm a true person of character and I'm going to keep pushing forward. This is just all so fucking gross. He got the headlines he wanted all over the ESPN scroller. It said Deshaun Watson apologizes. Would he have apologized if like his specific lack of apology wasn't mentioned as being part of the reason he was suspended? No. And for the Browns to put him out there to issue this bullshit, to let him start the preseason game, the meaningless preseason game, it just shows how little they give a shit. We know how little they give a shit. And yet they keep surprising me by how little they give a shit. Burn, burn, burn. Burn, burn. Jess? Really happy to be back burning things. Uh, this week, it's the Irish Rugby Football Union's new policy banning transgender women from competing in women's rugby. This decision came soon after England's Rugby Football Union decided to do the same, which was a reversal on their part. I'd like to thank friend of the show, Shane Thomas, for bringing this to my attention. For England, this affects a whopping six players. In Ireland, two. Eight people across two countries. Both groups are basically following guidance from the World Rugby Alliance, whose anti-trans policy I burned almost 90 episodes ago, almost two years ago in September 2020. On some level, me burning this just feels fucking redundant. And I do pause in my preparation and question saying these same things again. But that's bullshit. I'm calling it on myself because we got to continue to speak out about this very blatant, very horrific discrimination. I'd like to repeat something I said back in 2020 about the World Rugby Alliance's policy that the Irish Rugby Union and the England's Rugby Football Union's policy is based on. Quote, Sean Engel had a follow-up piece earlier this week at The Guardian. Turns out 84 academics from a range of fields, including sport, public health, and sociology, signed a letter saying there's no actual evidence that trans women pose a safety risk to cis women. So these groups will continue to yell that this is about science, about safety, and it's not. It is not. It's barely about any actual trans women playing rugby in real life. It's just about indulging transphobia, which is a comfortable thing to do in societies built on transphobia, on these strict binary gender divides. So I'm here to burn all this shit again, and we will keep burning it. And if you're getting tired of hearing about it, imagine fucking living with this constant dehumanization and questioning of your right to exist in this world. I hate it. And I want to set England and Ireland's Rugby Football Union's discriminatory anti-trans policies on fire. Burn. Burn. Amira? It's been 179 days that Brittany Griner has been detained in a Russian prison. On August 4th, she was convicted, as was expected, following her arrest for a negligible amount of cannabis containers um, the U.S. State Department, of course, has labeled her as wrongfully detained. After the sentencing came out, a nine-year sentence, which is uh, nearly double the average sentence for this crime in Russia. Um, so even by Russian legal standards, this is excessive. Um, there was a smattering of 
awful memes and tweets and reactions. Some of them are expected, just racist, sexist, homophobic drivel. Some of them are basic and predictable um, pictures of BG protesting and saying, oh, you thought you were oppressed, now you're in a Russian prison. Um, Some were just like out of left field. Folks who were like, well, here are all the Black people in U.S. prisons we should care about. And it's like, yes. (laughs) I, I don't, yes, we should. And it just... It's frustrating because this is not, it's not a joke. It's its terrifying. The people who want to point out like, oh, now you want to ask something of the governor. Well, actually, like you're getting at the heart of the problem. It's like now we have to trust people we don't trust. I don't trust the State Department to do jack shit. And yet they are the ones who are spearheading this campaign to get Britney home. We knew that a sentence was all but guaranteed. This morning, as we're recording this, the legal team has filed an appeal, which we also knew. Russia has been very clear that all of this has to happen before there is any conversation about a swap. There has been a proposal. We know all of these backroom, backdoor shit is happening. The fear and the pain is that what is the priority? Are people actually doing something? Do you need to compel people to do something? Basically trying to prevent Brittany Griner from becoming disposable in a country that is too eager, too often, to dispose of Black women, of queer women, of Black queer women. And that is what we're dealing with. So your memes are unhelpful. Your tweets are ridiculous. All of it is frustrating. And at the end of the day, a whole season has gone by And Brittany is not on the courts. She's not at home with Sherelle. She's not chilling on her couch. She is overseas, detained, wrongfully. And I am just mad as hell at people who want to be so damn glib about that. So I would like to burn that down and send so much love to BG. We remain in your corner and we cannot wait to bring you home. Burn. Burn. Look, just like we had a burn pile that was stacking up, we have torchbearers that we are ready to highlight. Before we get going, Amira, you want to get us started? We lost somebody very, very special. On July 31st, we lost the great Bill Russell. The Celtics great 11-time NBA champion died at the age of 88. What can you say about Bill Russell? I mean... He's the blueprint, civil rights icon, basketball icon, the impact he had on the sport, obviously on the Celtics organization, what he endured while playing, um, both in Boston and beyond. His continued ambassadorship um, for Black America, for ball, as a pioneer, is the legacy that Bill Russell leaves just a giant. We are just losing giants. Um, and he is right up there um, as as one of the biggest ones. So sleep easy and rest in peace to Bill Russell. Shereen, you want to get started with our honorable mentions? Solomon Bates, a minor leaguer, has publicly disclosed that he is gay. I'm a masculine man who loves the sport of baseball. And now I want to open doors for gay athletes like me. Solomon was a pitcher in the San Francisco Giants system for the Richmond Flying Squirrels. On Instagram, Bates said, Being gay in the sport, you don't know what comes at you. 
Baseball, I'm not done with you. I'm leaving on my terms and my terms only. Speaking of those coming out, this happened while we were on hiatus, but I wanted to be sure to make note of it. Last month, top Russian tennis player Daria Kasakina gave an interview with the Russian blogger Vidya Kravchenko in Barcelona, where she came out as gay and spoke out against the war in Ukraine, calling it a full-blown nightmare. Both statements could put her in serious danger if she returns to Russia which, of course, has extremely strict anti-LGBTQ laws and laws discouraging citizens from speaking out against the war. She actually sobbed in the interview and worried about her safety, saying she couldn't even hold her girlfriend's hand in Russia. But she's since been publicly sharing photos with her girlfriend, a Russian figure skater who actually skates for Canada now, and she's been playing well on the tennis court, making it back into the top 10 for the first time since 2019. Jess? Annemiek van Vleuten won the 2022 Women's Tour de France, overcoming a brutal stomach flu and mechanical issues, including no less than five bike changes during the eighth and final stage of the tour. This was the first Women's Tour de France since 1989. In case you missed it during our break, I interviewed cyclist Ashley Mulman Passio and Zvif's Kate Verano about the Tour de France Femmes Avec Swift back on July 21st. Congratulations to Van Vluten, and we are excited about next year's tour. Amira. Yeah, Ailey Price won the Norseman Extreme Triathlon World Championships, which is considered the toughest extreme triathlon in the world. She swam 3.8 kilometers, cycled 180 kilometers, and ran a marathon up of one of Norway's highest mountains. And they have a lot of mountains in Norway, <laughs> all in under 12 hours. She told BBC Scotland, for me, it wasn't a race. It was an individual battle of survival. I never had any expectations of winning. At the mountaintop plateau, the temperature was 2 Celsius. That's 36.5 degrees Fahrenheit. You're swimming in a fjord for almost 4 kilometers. That's 2.5 miles. And it was 13 degrees Celsius. That's 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Price trained for the race while working a full-time job and without a coach or sponsors. Literally, because we've been off for so long, I think all of these are actual torchbearers, but I picked one. Can I get a drum roll, please? We have Shelly Ann Fraser Price at the World Championships in Oregon last month. Shelly Ann Fraser Price won the 100 meter final in 10.67 seconds to capture her record setting fifth World Championship medal. Then two weeks ago, she ran the fastest 100 meters of the year, clocking 10.66 seconds at the Diamond League in Poland. And just last week, the 35-year-old Jamaican won the 100-meter dash in 10.62 seconds at the Monaco Diamond League. She's the first woman to break 10.7 seconds six times in one season. That's six times. And just a reminder, since we're talking about motherhood this episode, that 2017, she had an emergency C-section when she had her son, Zion, and took two years away from the track to rehabilitate. I think most of our what's good is going to be in our Patreon segment. We're going to go deep. Our lightning round what's good is just that we're back. I'm just so happy to be back. I've missed you all. And I know, Shireen, you wanted to say something on the main episode. I got married. Yay! (laughs) I, I got married to someone who works with the Toronto Raptors. So, I mean, if I didn't love them enough before... 
it's sealed the deal i'm so sorry to tim duncan i couldn't wait for you but to hear about that to hear about amira's sps amira wrote for the sps i don't know if anyone knew um stick tuned to our patreon What we're watching this week, WNBA playoffs, uh, is what I'm going to be watching. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't thought about much else, but um, there, there's a lot of great women's soccer going on. Tennis in Cincinnati. Tennis, Cincinnati, Serena's goodbye tour, and we're all excited. Anyways, that's it for this week of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tresta Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, rate on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. We've got show links and transcripts, burnitalldownpod.com, and you'll find a link to our merch at our Bonfire store. Burn on and not out.